the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com.
Jesus, salvation is a very personal matter. The air conditioning went out on the little Honda that I drive. It wasn't personal, it was just mechanical. Now, it felt very personal because I was hot. But it wasn't personal, it was just mechanical. So I took it to the mechanic. He repaired it. I paid the bill. $187. And I drove away a happy camper. My air conditioning was fixed. It wasn't personal. The next day, I got in the car, turned on the air conditioning, and it wasn't working. Now it felt personal. But it wasn't. It was just mechanical. The car wasn't mad at me. The car didn't even have feelings about it. You could have asked the car, do you have feelings about not giving Pastor Ray his air conditioning? The car wouldn't have answered. It wasn't personal. I took it back to my mechanic. He said, Ray, we'll have to tear into it. So he put his man on the car and discovered that the hood uh, bar that keeps the hood up when you're working on the car had been laying on a little aluminum pipe said, Ray, that's not a problem to fix. We can take care of that quickly. We'll just remove it here and here, and you're on your way. Well, when they removed it, they stripped the aluminum. Then they tried to order the parts. said, Ray, we're going to have to button it up and come back tomorrow. We'll have the parts. It wasn't personal. It was just mechanical. 
Now, I could have gotten very personal about it. The next day, the parts had come in. It was a very expensive part and a very expensive repair. The mechanic came in and he said, Pastor Ray, you've got to make the call. There's one bolt that will not come loose. It's the one that connects this pipe directly into the compressor. If it strips out, we'll have to replace the compressor. I said, thank you for telling me. Now I'll start to pray. Suddenly it was becoming personal. Because I was looking at driving the car with no air conditioning. Now it wasn't personal on the car's part. But it felt personal to me. Because now it was going to impact my comfort. And when somebody begins to deal with my comfort, it begins to feel personal. But it wasn't personal. The car wasn't mad at me. It was just mechanical. It wasn't even organic. It was just mechanical. The repair was finished. The bolt came out. The system was recharged. I went in to the owner of the shop, and with dread in my heart, I said, how much damage today? He said, it won't be more than $1,000. My face fell. He said, no, don't worry. Let me work it out. Shoved the bill across the desk to me. Couldn't believe my eyes. He had credited me fully for the day's work before. He had cut all of his prices in half. And he didn't charge me labor. Suddenly it was very personal. And then he said, Ray, why don't you come by the house before we close the pool up? We ought to have a cookout. I said, thank you, I'd love that. Now it was becoming very personal. Because this man who owned this shop was becoming very involved with me. And it was personal. It started out just as a mechanical problem. It was not personal. But as I went down the road, the further I went, the more personal it became. Until finally it resulted in an invitation to dinner and a cookout. Sometimes in my life, I have difficulty sorting out what is personal and what is not personal. For some strange reason, I have a tendency to think that everything that happens in my life is personal. In reality, most of what happens in my life is not personal. It becomes personal when I recognize the devil's hand in it and I see that the devil is after me. It takes wisdom to know what is personal and what is not personal, and then it takes prayer to deal with what is personal. Everything about your salvation is personal to God. None of it is mechanical, and none of it just is. Everything about your life 
in salvation with Jesus is personal to Jesus. Sometimes I've even felt like God was just a computer. And whatever was going to be, was going to be. And then I thought about Eli and I said, no, 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 wait a minute. That was Eli's prayer. God, whatever you're going to do, it's fine with me. Okay, God says, I'm going to take the lives of your two sons. I'm also going to take the ark and give it to the Philistines, who will take it to their temple and put it there before Dagon. When Eli understood how personal it was with God, he fell off his chair and broke his neck. He feasted on filet too much. He had walked in sin for too long. But by the time he understood that it was personal, it was over. Judgment fell on Eli and his family, and on the whole house of God. Because Eli didn't understand it was personal. The decisions you're making in your life You're not just making those decisions in some kind of vacuum. You're making those decisions in the presence of Almighty God. And he's going to deal. You will not in the end walk away and say, it was all just a computer. Because for him it's personal. He gives us the Sermon on the Mount. And he walks through in the Beatitudes, let's just review. He walks through in the Beatitudes the step-by-step process by which he intends to make us righteous. By which he intends to make us salty. And then he says in verse 11, Matthew 5 verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Well, why would God let that happen? Because there's a war on. We live in a war zone. And Satan is determined to take you to hell with him. We live with the illusion that this is the wonderful world of America. And we can live the life we choose. Regardless, this is personal between the devil and Jesus. This is not some abstract battle. It's not some mechanical arrangement with computers. These are two persons. One the eternal God of heaven and one the created highest power in the universe. And they're at war with each other. And Jesus doesn't use the weapons of the devil. Jesus could blow the devil out. And then everyone would serve Jesus out of fear, lest he would blow them out. He uses mercy and kindness and love, gentleness. He uses all the things that he is. The devil uses everything that he is. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a murderer. He's a killer. 
So you have two totally different ways and power coming at one another. Then he comes to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, or literally it should be translated, but if the salt becomes passive, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Can I tell you my great fear for the National Prayer Chapel? We are an extremely passive people. We are in grave danger of dropping over the edge of the cliff and being unable to be turned for anything useful for God. Can I tell you how I know that? I came to the podium to pray this morning. Most of you were not here. That's passivity. That's loss of saltiness. And then as we began to pray, was there an eager stampede to pray? No. It was passive, holding back not wanting to pray, not wanting to leap in and be a part of the family, but holding back. In psychological terms, we call it conserving holding. (laughs) Conserving holding. I'm going to think about this for a while and decide whether I'll pray, and then by the time you decide, prayer's over. I've spoken with some of you privately, and I've said, what's holding you back from praying? I don't know, Pastor. It's just, that's called passivity. I can guarantee you that none of you in this room are passive when you go to your work. If you were, you would lose your jobs. Instead, you step in and say, okay, what's the next task? What's my to-do list? Did you know that when you come to church, you should have a to-do list? And first and foremost on that to-do list should be actively come into the presence of God with prayer and praise. Another item on your to-do list should be, if you're walking in any sin, to find a brother or sister that you can confess your sin to and ask them to pray for you that you could have the victory over that sin. Another key part of that to-do list should be, who needs to be coming with me to church? Who do I need to talk with and minister to and bring them with me to the house of God? But we're Americans. And church for Americans is a, it's a spectator sport. It's where we go to get something, not to give something. Church is not a place to go where you get something. How many of you, let's lay it out, how many of you would be happy if your family came into the house, it's almost dinner time, they go sit in the living room, they put their feet up, and they call out to you, is dinner ready? Now, we guys can get away with that a few times. And then pretty soon, the wife says, 
Who was your slave last week? Honey, would you come take the trash out? Honey, would you do this? Will you do that? Would you help clean up? Hey, would you set the table? Suddenly, there are a myriad of things that need to be done. And everybody's involved. That's family. Family is not where people come in and sit down on comfortable chairs and say, I'm a baby bird. Please feed me. What? Grow up. It's cute to see these little babies. But in 10 years, if mama is still nursing that baby, it won't be cute. We'll say, we have a serious problem here. Well, we have a serious problem with the National Prayer Chapel. And the problem is passivity. Not recognizing that we're part of a family and stepping in and saying, how can I contribute? How can I make this happen? Instead, blowing in at the last minute, coming in and just taking, assuming that there's going to be a comfortable chair that you can sit on. Did you know somebody had to put those chairs up? When we come into the presence of God, passivity says we're not going to sing, we're not going to pray, we're we're just here to watch, we're spectators. And then during the week, no phone calls to brothers or sisters. You should not leave this house today without at least two or three people that you know you have a covenant to call them this week, to talk with them and ask them the question, how is your journey this week in Jesus? Now, some of you can't be here on Tuesday night because you have work assignments. So it's impossible for you to be here. Has a work assignment ever stopped you from taking your telephone and hitting my number? You know, a few people in this congregation will continually call me or text me either right before or right after the radio broadcast. And they will encourage me. They will pray with me. I know I'm not going on the air alone. I have brothers and sisters who are going on the air with me. And I thank God for each of you who does that. Some of you I never hear from. I wonder if we went around this room today and just said, how many times did you hear this week from somebody in this church? I wonder how many times we hear from each other. No, we don't. I I can tell you right now, most people in this room did not hear from anybody in this church this week. Why? Because we're passive. We're losing our saltiness. We have our own individual lives. We live those lives, some in quiet desperation. Some of you in this room today have burdens so heavy, I don't know how you bear those burdens. You have my greatest love and respect because you've talked with me one-on-one. I know some of the burdens you're bearing in your heart, and you don't know how you're going to get through it, either temptations or physical issues or character issues that you're just struggling with. You shouldn't be struggling alone with those issues. You should be opening our hearts and talking and sharing. This is personal with Jesus. 
Now, I go down to the Kennedy Center occasionally when I'm invited. I love classical music. And I even love some operas. You know, I can go to an opera. I can be stirred to tears. I can laugh. And I walk out. And you know what I say? It wasn't personal. I don't know any of those people. It was just entertainment. You know what? I don't want to come here and preach to you and have it be impersonal. I want it to be very personal. I'm not here to be mechanical. I want you to come alive in your spirit and not be passive. I want you to reach out and care about others. I want you to identify people in your community, in your circle, who need to be here with you. Some of you have parents who need to be here. Some of you have husbands or wives that need to be here. You have friends who are going to hell. And if it's not personal now, it will be very personal soon. What are you going to do? Do you want to spend eternity without those people who are in your life right now? Without those children? That's personal to me. So part of what Jesus is laying out for us at the very beginning of his statement of what the gospel is, is that this is personal. Don't be passive. Step in. And then he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Have you been on a lamp stand this week so that everybody could see the love and kindness that flowed from your heart? Or did people see judgment, bitterness, anger, harshness? What did they see as your light shone? Was it a brilliant flame of the love of Jesus Christ? Or was it passivity? Was it deadness? Was it darkness? This is what Jesus is saying right at the beginning of his major sermon that he introduces the whole gospel. He lays out these principles. Then he talks about the sins that are of most concern to his heart. And the first sin he identifies we dealt with last week, and that was the sin of murder of anger toward others, of strife, of conflict, of our fighting for our way. You know, I've struggled almost all my life to try to learn how to be a fair fighter. The family I grew up in did not know how to fight fair. They fought dirty. What do I mean by that? Well, my brothers were bigger than me, and so if we got in a fight, they wouldn't talk. They just beat me up. 
That's not fair fighting. Or if mom and dad were close and they knew they would get in trouble if they beat me up, they began calling me names. Name calling is not fair fighting. In almost every couple that I've had to do marital counseling with, a primary problem in the relationship has been they have not understood how to fight fair. And they call each other the most wicked name. Have you called anybody a name this week? Have you said to someone, stupid? Or have you called them some other name? Or have you been called a name? Jesus is saying right at the beginning of his message to us out of the Sermon on the Mount, fight fair. How do you fight fair? You honestly share what you feel and what you think, and you do it in a transparent way without any judgment. You just share what's on your heart with love, with courtesy, with respect. You say, but that's not fighting, Pastor. Yeah, that is fighting. It's resolving every difficulty by humbling your heart and not taking a position of power against the enemy. Because he says later in this passage, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. How are we any different from the world if we just beat somebody up with judgments and accusations and bitterness and name-calling? How are we any different than the world? Today we come to the second sin that Jesus is most concerned with. And the second sin is the sin of adultery, the sin of fornication, the sin of lust. By definition, it's simply using another person for my own pleasure. Jesus said that this sin will cause more destruction in the heart of the human being than any other sin except murder. Would would you have made this on your list of worst sins? Would you have made this number two? He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That is, he has looked at a woman and desired her for himself, for his pleasure, or for her pleasure. It's just the same for a woman. Looking at another person, desiring that person to fulfill the lust of my own heart, Jesus is saying that that will bring destruction on your life. He's saying, don't do it. Don't walk in it. Some of us, have had such huge holes in our soul. And we haven't known how to fill that hole. So we try to fill it with people, with relationships. When we can't fill the hole of our soul with a relationship, because every time we try, we get burned. And we finally just give up and start using people Jesus is saying, watch out. 
don't use people. Some of us have had holes so big in our heart that you could drive a Mack truck through it. And I tell you honestly, I tried to fill the hole in my heart for many years with ministry, with church, with success, with relationships with people. None of it satisfied the desire of my soul. Jesus is the only one who has been big enough to fill the hole of my soul. Jesus is so stern about this issue. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He is not very sentimental about this issue. He's saying, do not use each other. Then he goes on. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's saying, look, this issue of using another person is the number two sin. The number one sin is killing another person. The number two sin is using another person. How do you avoid using another person? He answers that question in verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to simply say is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. He's saying, be a person of your word. When you make an agreement, keep the agreement. When you use another person, You are breaking a basic human agreement. And it comes out of a prideful heart. He's saying, humble your heart. Recognize that you're not in charge of the world. You're not in charge of the sun or the moon. You're not in charge of creation. You're not even in charge of the color of your hair. Well, today we might question that. Only your hairdresser knows. I met a blonde woman this week who said she was from Texas. And I said to her, somehow you don't look like a blonde person. She said, Pastor, I'm not a blonde person. I'm a redhead. I said, I could tell just by looking at you. Why are you trying to cover up that beautiful red hair with that blonde ugly? 
she looked at me and she wasn't sure whether she was going to slap me or whether she was going to laugh. She finally burst into laughter. She said, thank you for telling me the truth. I'm done with blonde hair. Look, somewhere we speak the truth in love to each other and we keep the agreements we make with one another. We don't play games. Sin is such a strange thing. And the very sin is pride. And we Americans are so proud. We think we can make ourselves look like what we want to look like. We can go where we want to go. We can do what we want to do. We can withhold our love and our appreciation for other people. We can walk in arrogance before God. We can make whatever judgments we want to make about anybody we want to make the judgments about. The Lord is saying, stop it. Speak the truth. Live the truth. Be who I made you to be. Walk clean before God. Don't play with God. I want to share with you another passage of Scripture where Paul begins to pick up this theme. I recognize that it's probably, with some of you, not a very popular passage. But I hope after today it will be one of your favorite passages. Ephesians, the fifth chapter. I'll begin in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's saying, come under one another. Don't raise yourself up as something. Humble your heart. Submit to one another. And then he really begins to mix it up. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Come under your husband's authority. But it doesn't stop there. As you do to the Lord. In other words, you submit first to the Lord. And then under the Lord, you submit to your husband. Because God is trying to set up a model you recognize that the angels don't marry. The angels were not given the power to create life. That was given to us. We were the ones who were given the power to create life. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So he says, you're under the Lord, but under the Lord, then submit to your husband in everything. Let him be the head of the house. I can't tell you how many times 
when a couple comes in for counseling, I will say to them, who wears the pants in the family? Almost inevitably, the husband will say, she does. And I'll turn to her and say, do you wear the pants in the family? And inevitably, she'll say, yes. Okay, that's where we have to start. Total power shift has to happen. Husband has to be the head of the house. Now, what's that look like? And then we talk about it. And why he's not the head of the house and what he's afraid his wife will do to him if he's the head of the house. Then verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, husbands be crucified for your wife. Husband, be crucified for your wife. So Mama says, this television has to go, honey. And he says, no way. I'm the head of this house. It's time for you, mister, to be crucified. See, this deal with the wives submitting to the husbands is very interesting because it does not say, wives, die for your husband. It says, husband, die for your wife. I thought about getting all the men together to talk about this and just talking to the men and let let the women go free and, and ask the question, men, have you been crucified? Have you been crucified for your wife? And when you get married, are you willing to be crucified? If you aren't, don't get married because she will crucify you. Sorry, that's how it is. That's how God set it up. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. To make her holy. If the man is unwilling to walk toward the Lord, and to be crucified, the wife will probably follow you to hell. I have yet to see a woman not fill a vacuum. It's just how women are made. And when men won't be men, women will fill the vacuum. And then they wear the pants in the family. And the going gets really tough. The purpose is to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. 
for we are members of his body. You see why it's so personal to Jesus? We are literally one with Christ. We are the body of Christ on this earth. He needs us to dwell in to do his work on this earth. And if we are passive and self-centered, we're not available for him to flow through to accomplish the task he wants to accomplish. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Jesus is using this symbol of not using another person, but giving myself for the good of another person for the purpose of their righteousness, for the purpose of their holiness, to build them up, to encourage them, to to call them to follow after Jesus, to be the church. And he's saying, I'm willing to be one with you. This is very personal. You understand, in the scripture, when it refers to knowing God, the word knowing is literally the same word that is used for human intercourse between a husband and a wife. God wants to become intimate with his people. But if they're full of themselves, they refuse to submit. They refuse to move out of their passivity and begin to be able for him to use to accomplish his work. What's he to do? He is a rebellious wife. And when the wife goes out and commits adultery with the world, Jesus then has the right to divorce you from his kingdom. And he will. I don't know about you, but I don't want God to divorce me. Are you one with Christ today? Have you been married to Jesus? Have you submitted yourself to him? He has died for you. He's been crucified for you. And he wants you to submit yourself to him. He wants to become one with you. He wants to walk in love and fellowship with you. It's very personal for him. I can tell you today, when my sweetheart Jan died, it was very personal. One of the greatest sadnesses that I haven't even been able to talk about yet is as she became more and more sick, she began to withdraw from me. She didn't mean to withdraw from me, but she couldn't be my wife. She was too sick. And what it required of me was a greater and greater amount of love being poured out for her because she could not respond in kind. Do you understand? This is the same thing Jesus does for us. We are sick in this world. There is sin that grabs a hold of our hearts. He wants us to submit to him. He will heal and remove that, and he has poured out an extraordinary amount of himself 
to cover our sin so that we can respond to him. And we are in the process then of being healed of that sickness if we will submit to him. And when you go out of this house today, everything you do and everything you say is very personal to Jesus. He is literally the lover of your soul. He literally wants to be your spouse. He has said, I will die for you. Will you submit to me? Will you walk with me? I don't know the name of the song. A man by the name of Ben Glanzer sang the song when I was a kid. It was a song of walking hand in hand in the field. The image that I got as a child was walking hand in hand with Jesus in the field, in the woods. Now, I often did that with my mom or dad. But the thought of doing that with Jesus as a youngster, as a little boy, just enlivened and set my heart on fire. I still carry that image in my heart. Sometimes in the morning as I head off for the radio, I'll say, Jesus, would you just walk today with me? Would you hold my hand? There's a big bully on the block. I can't deal with him. He'll knock me down and he'll stomp. Will you walk with me? And some mornings it takes quite a while in the prayer closet before I finally feel the release in my spirit that says, yes, I'll walk with you today. And I have to stay in the prayer closet until that release comes. Because I know if I don't, I'm going to get stomped. Number one sin, killing somebody, murdering them. Number two sin, using somebody. Don't be passive this week. Choose this week to walk hand in hand with Jesus. Make yourself available for him as the lover of your soul. This is not a battle you fight alone. He walks with us. He talks with us. He calls us his own. So spend your time in the prayer closet. Spend your time in the scriptures. Don't spend any time worrying about the bully. Walk with Jesus. Almighty God, I would never have made these the top two sins on my hit parade list, but you made them yours. See why. Lord, make us a people of our word that we will submit to you. 
and we will not use others for our own ends, but will instead find ways to give to others, to love others, to lift their burdens, to call them to follow you. Thank you so Lord, much for joining you us today. today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you name. by the National Prayer Chapel. We're located in Woodbridge, Virginia, and you can visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.